Okay, well, I'd like to extend a really warm welcome to Joe Remini, a vestibular audiologist and neuroplasticity therapist in, in Australia. Uh, every day I work with tinnitus people and your name crops up a lot as somebody who really helps people get, get on the road to the recovery with tinnitus. So <clears throat> after all this time, it's a real pleasure to meet you. And I, I know you're the author of a book, Rock Steady, which is in our midst. It's about to come out. So I really wish you well with that. So I'm, I'm really interested in hearing about your story with tinnitus, your, your personal journey, just how, how did you get involved with tinnitus? What happened? Yeah, well, my, as you won't be surprised, my story was really more than tinnitus and also incorporated feelings of vertigo and dizziness are not quite right. And I'll, I'll talk about the whole story. Um, and in, so if we start from the beginning, I suppose I wouldn't have really known what any of these things were, of course, had I not become a vestibular audiologist and begun to learn about the inner ears and then of course disorders of the inner ears. And I do remember, um, being in a lecture specifically on tinnitus and essentially the message was, you know, this is really bad. If it happens, people can become suicidal. There's not much we can do. And we're learning all the theory behind it and speculations about the anatomy and physiology of how it's happening and why it's happening. But it really kind of ended there apart from, you know, offer clients support, definitely recommend a hearing aid. It always came back to hearing aids. and my experience as being an audiologist was I was really disillusioned by the world of hearing aids. I didn't like the idea of being some kind of sales merchant. And um, I very quickly gravitated towards vestibular audiology where I fell in love with the balance organs. And I also loved the human stories I was meeting as I was testing clients with chronic and complex vestibular disorders. And working at the University of Melbourne Balance Clinic, both as a student, a master's student, and then later on I worked there as a professional. I mean, I got to spend two to three hours with each person, which is a long time. And you, I was able to really hear their stories. And after seeing hundreds and thousands of clients, I saw patterns. So anyway, I was really immersed in this academic, theoretical, hospital-based medical model world seeing lots of people with tinnitus, lots of people with vestibular disturbance. And the messages I found were a little bit doom and gloom. So anyway, coming back to my story, I am a naturally anxious person. I'm hypervigilant. I'm hypochondriac. Um, I mean, not technically, but I have that tendency and I've done a lot of work to manage it and calm it and steady myself. And after doing a little bit of soul searching and my own healing journey, it's become apparent to me that I think a lot of my neurology and my neural pathways of this doom and gloom kind of set in probably around the age of one when mum said I stopped breastfeeding and I went onto the bottle drinking cow's milk and had a reaction and became really severely asthmatic. And I was hospitalized, which of course is very scary for the whole family. And Mum really, her upbringing was, well, just get on with it. Just get on with it. So it was this, I, I grew up in a world of, oh, well, you're hospitalized. Just get on with it. That's the way it is. And I said to mum, why didn't you just try and give me a, an alternative milk? And she's like, well, no one did that back then. It wasn't a thing. You just gave the child a bottle and that was that. And I, I wonder if that really put in play this fear of breathing fear of darkness, like literally kind of meeting death on a relatively frequent basis. And the world around me just being like, well, your sensitivities don't matter. So just keep eating, just stay alive and move on with it. And that was very much a message I embodied as a little girl moving all the way through school and all the way through high school was your sensitivities don't matter. Just get on with it. And I love my parents. They're amazing. This is in no way, shape or form blaming them we have a great relationship mum and dad were doing their best and that was of course the stories they were told the other interesting thing 
is my mum had migraines, which will feed into my story. And I do remember as a little girl, mum just taking days in bed or running the bath and saying, don't disturb me. And that was my normal. I was used to seeing um, mum give herself days off, whether it was two, three times a year, and it didn't seem medical. So I had this kind of just get on with it attitude in my childhood, for better or worse. So fast forward, around the age of 15, I said to mum, I really don't want to be on medications anymore. I was on a lot of preventer medications. It was affecting my vocal cords. There were side effects, daddy, daddy, daddy. Plus philosophically, it didn't gel with me. Already by a really young age, I was keyed into nature and nature's way. And I was, I don't know why, I was skeptical of medicine. Who knows? We can't ex- I can't explain that piece, but I was skeptical of medicine. Mum was generous enough to really support me through seeing a naturopath and a nutritionist and looking at some of the dietary links to asthma. I took some time off um, dairy and wheat. I think it was only two months. And I was very fit and healthy. And that really just gave my whole system a cleanse. And I got off all my asthma medications. And at the same year, I discovered yoga. And I was a really disciplined, focused yoga student for the simple reason that it became my space to steady myself. I was a very anxious, overwhelmed, sensitive child and young woman. And I had no idea of what that meant. No one explained it to me. I was faking it all the time. I was, you know, I was bubbly and cheerful on the outside, but on the inside, I was really feeling unsafe and not feeling like it's okay to be me. I just had to get on with it. Ever since being that little baby, I just had to get on with it and deal with the fact that you're allergic to things kind of attitude. So yoga started to become my safe place. And I loved reading the literature. Light on Yoga was the first book I read. And that really gave me some of the beginnings and insights of neuroplasticity and changing the body and mental discipline and a practice. So from a really young age, I was really learning to change my view of illness and sickness and my control that I could potentially take back so fast forward back to being an audiology student discovering tinnitus discovering all these vestibular conditions i just remember thinking like oh my god how awful like what if i get tinnitus i don't want to be like suicidal and stuck with it and of course you know it put into play that whole anxious overwhelmed hypochondriac side of my personality that freaked out and what do you know I could hear my tinnitus. Like it, that, that's how it started for me. It was an awareness conversation thing. And at that point in my life, the main thing I remember is I was really critical. Like even just looking in the mirror, I was just so picky of any blemish or anything. I was so self-judgmental. Um, and there was a, a period of time there where the tinnitus sounds would come and go. I would pretend, I would fake it. I'd pretend it didn't matter to me. I am grateful for my audiology background because at least I kind of had an understanding which made me less afraid of it, but I still felt like a failure. I felt like a phony. I didn't want to hear it. And I also kind of knew that my anxiety exacerbated it. So I was already beginning to, you know, within the first year of exposure, I was really quickly learning to see how I could make it louder or make it softer. So I wasn't getting rid of it. I still wasn't at peace with it, but I at least had this kind of, hmm, I can change it. So that was kind of interesting. And that was, that was a part of my journey in getting to know my personal control over what I was sensing and hearing. Um, And then later on down the track, I do remember times of being overwhelmed, really loud screeching in my ears, you know, popping, roaring cicadas, a static sound. And I, I talk about this in my book I've written. There was one time where I think it was Christmas Eve and I was just, I was madly rushing around doing last minute jobs. And it was one of those really busy days where it's just, you know, traffic jams and parking and running from here to there. And I got home around four o'clock and I rested. And it was in the resting that suddenly my body noise just went through the roof so loud, like extraordinary loud. And I lay there. And I was well on the way to healing or at least exploring healing by this point. And this is my own personal self-inquiry into neuroplasticity. 
um, I remember laying there with this extraordinary loud noise in my head and thinking, it kind of sounds like I'm in the middle of the Tasmanian wilderness in some little hiking hut with a corrugated iron roof and there's rain pounding on top of me. And I sort of took solace in that imagery of hiking in the wilderness and having this refuge. I personally love the rain. So it shifted into like this retreat sanctuary space. Before you know it, I was off and wandering and I was mentally free. So it kind of went from a really loud, disturbing, distressing space to a sanctuary. And from that place, I could just wander my mind and the sound disappeared. So this was when I started to go, oh, okay, I get it. I started to get it. So around about the same time, and I'm not so great with timelines on all of this, but I got benign paroxysmal positional vertigo twice. I got BPPV. And it was one of those things where, again, my anxiety was like, no, I'm a vestibular audiologist. I can't get BPPV. Like that just sounds too good to be true or just too uncanny. And it was, going, it was a time when I was really vulnerable. Um, my brother had broken his neck skiing. He was now a quadriplegic. I was one of his primary carers. It was just intense. I also had a relationship breakdown. So my living arrangements and everything had changed. So there was a kind of a, at least a one or two year period where I had some really deep life traumas and stresses. Um, and so from the hormonal point of view, my physiology had really changed and we don't necessarily understand why, but that often correlates with onset of vestibular audi audiological conditions. So BBBV is one of those. And then vestibular migraine was the other condition um, I also relate to. And I can talk about both of those. The BBBV is when you roll over in bed and you get the visual spinning and it makes you feel very drunk, obviously very unsafe, very unsettled. I knew all about it. I was trained in treating it and I actually treated myself at home in bed and I went to work. And believe it or not, I rode my bike to work through Melbourne City. And the reason I could do that is because when we're upright, the, the calcium particles settle and you kind of return to a baseline normal. Some people feel completely normal, whereas sensitive people like me, I could still feel the crystals moving because I have very high sense. I, I noticed everything, right? Nothing slips me slips past me and my senses. I'm highly attuned to what I sense and feel in my environment. Um, and about you're a person, you're an HSP. <laughs> yes, about 20% of the population are HSP. So I could, even though I was riding and I was safe, I could still feel the drunken feeling um, of those calcium carbonate particles moving around. So anyway, I went to work and I asked a colleague to test me. She's like, yep, sure enough, you've got BBBV. She gave me another treatment. And I was kind of starting to feel a bit sheepish and some of my anxiety was kind of starting to creep in. And this is the interesting thing in my journey is part of me is the patient who's completely anxious, completely overwhelmed, completely freaking out and just struggling to keep it together. And the other part of me is kind of the wise healer, scientist, therapist who gets it. Like I'm, I'm constantly rock hopping between the two. Um, <laughs> And you'll probably hear that reflected in my story. Part of me is very vulnerable and very anxious. And the other part of me is like, it's okay. Like, we can get through this, but I'm freaking out. It'll be fine. So I've, I've got both. So I got the treatment and my colleagues actually said, look, just go home and rest. This mustn't feel very nice. It'll be fine. So I, got, I think I got a day off work, rode my bike back home and, um, just kind of had to, to, to settle down. The vestibular migraine piece, uh, vestibular migraine doesn't actually mean you get headaches. So it can really be easily overlooked. And I do have migraine running in my family. But this was where I was in the thick of the stress and the trauma and the life changes. And there'd be times when I was just extremely sensitive in crowds. Um, computer screens triggered me. Like I'd literally be lying under my desk in my office at work basically with an eye mask over my eyes, just resting between clients or um, whenever I could, because I was too stimulated. Um, lunch breaks, I just felt overwhelmed. I didn't want to talk to people. I'd take myself outside, go sit by a tree. I had the spotting, dotting, visual auras. I had the stomach drop where I felt um, 
unsafe behind the wheel driving a car that actually happened to me on a highway. It was really scary. But of course, I then had the therapist in me saying, hold on to the steering wheel, feel your seatbelt, come back to your proprioception, everything's okay, your brain's got this. Um, so I was really able to kind of navigate that dance between being the patient freaking out and being the wise, calm therapist able to hold me through that. So yeah, the sensitivity to crowds, to computers, visual spotting and dotting, sensitivity to light, these are all classic markers for vestibular migraine with no actual headache. Um, and then, of course, just the, the, the vertigo and dizziness, which is a sensation of movement when you know you're still. And it doesn't necessarily involve visual spinning, but it can. <clears throat> and um, so that would happen on and off all the time. And I had a lot of strategies to work with that. Um, in that time period, I definitely experienced anxiety, feelings of depression, isolation. I have no idea why, but I was terrified the doctors would put me on medication, so I just didn't tell anyone. I'm not sure that was the smartest move, but that was what happened. Um, and I think also I trusted myself to navigate it, even though I didn't understand it. I didn't know the ins and outs of neuroplasticity yet. I was playing with it. I was trial and error in my own way. I felt very protective and ashamed of myself for feeling these things. So I really hid it from people and pretended and I faked it, but I was really struggling. I didn't want to go out socially. I didn't want to be in crowds at all. Even going out to dinner with people was too much. It was really hard. Um, anyway, and so I did get better. And what really kept driving me, is I was meeting hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, which became thousands of clients whose lives were really falling apart. And they were describing symptoms that I personally had experience with. And I'm like, hmm, why isn't anybody helping them? Because I had all these tricks and tools I was using to help me stay afloat and to help me recuperate and to help me rejuvenate and restore. And I had my yoga practice. So of course I had in incredible um, connection to my proprioceptive, my touch and balance system, aside from the ears. I didn't rely on the ears because of my, my yoga background. So anyway, it got to a point where I was working with leading neurologists, leading ear, nose and throat surgeons, leading psychologists, psychiatrists, physiotherapists, everyone. And these clients with the chronic complex conditions of tinnitus and dizziness and vertigo we're being told basically go home and deal with it or try these anti-anxieties or these anti-depression style medications or vestibular suppressants. And I'm like, really? Like there's so much more we can offer these clients. I just didn't understand why the conversation wasn't happening. And this is when I started to dive a bit deeper and use my background. So my first degree is in psychology and neuroscience. And then I specialize in the inner ear with a master's of clinical vestibular audiology and alongside all of that, I had my, my enormous yoga background and discipline. And once I qualified with my master's degree, I went straight away into a really intense yoga apprenticeship. And um, all up, I did like 7,000 hours yoga training over, I think, a 12-year period. A lot. And this is, it's, a, it's a huge amount. And a lot of it was one-on-one -on -one apprenticeship style training. So very rare, very traditional, and very much a self-discovery space where the teacher didn't spoon feed me. I had to figure it out myself. Mm -hmm. Um, so another part of my story was I got this, I, I got an injury to my eyeball surfing, which is no big deal. It was just the cornea got scraped, but then it didn't heal. And I had this 18 month period of going to doctors and taking myself to the emergency at hospital and, um, just knowing every day something wasn't right with my eyes. And so again, I had this kind of sensory mismatch where there was spotting and dotting and blurriness, but it would change every day. So it wasn't like I just had a scar in my eye that was stable. It was changing and then it would feel gritty and I'm not an eye specialist. So suddenly I'm like, well, I don't know what's going on. Like if it's about the ears, okay, I can, I've got the training in that. So suddenly I was in this space of really being the patient and having to use all of my rock steady skills to navigate the sensory changes and sensory distortions. But I didn't actually have the technical or medical understanding of the eyeball because that wasn't part of my university degree. So I really got this empathy and compassion for my clients of what it felt like to feel ferried around the medical system and no one giving me a straight answer. And eventually, finally, I got to see an um, ophthalmologist and eye specialist who quickly diagnosed me with uh, repetitive 
corrosion of the cornea. It had a fancy name, but basically it meant my, the covering, the cornea, the covering of my eye was when I slept at night, the, it wasn't healing because my eyelid was effectively gluing itself to the eyeball. And when I woke up in the morning, it was reopening the scar, which is why it was changing all the time. So anyway, so I finally got a little bit of support and help with that. It wasn't all over. I went through an actual period of sympathetic blindness, which basically means at one point I lost 50% of my cornea through one of these ab abrasions where the eyelid ripped the cornea off the eyeball. I had exposed nerve endings <laughs> in my eye for 24 hours or something like this. And it just never occurred to me to freak out. I was so calm. I couldn't have any light. If I saw any light at all, it was like electric bolts of pain shooting through my brain. It was, it was horrifically painful. I was home alone. My husband was overseas at the time. I had, I'd never used those um, Siri, we call it in Australia, but the voice recognition on the phone, I'd never used that, but I couldn't open my eyes. I literally could not open my eyes. And I had to walk around my house with my eyes closed I had to gather all my thick yoga blankets. I managed to turn the couch on its side and create this very dark cocoon with all the heavy yoga blankets draping around. I called my mum by saying, you know, Siri, call mum. <laughs> and mum was in Melbourne. Like, we don't live in Melbourne. So when she came down at the end of the day, so I was home alone for an entire day. Mum eventually came down. She held me by the arm. She guided me down the stairs. She took me to her place and fed me dinner. And what had happened was because the eye was under so much duress the other eye actually shuts down in sympathy like in neurological sympathy so that the body can heal and it forces you into blindness wow. anyway so i think that was when we went to the emergency and it was just full on um but the moral of the story is it kind of again was a neuroplasticity practice because i was going through all this intense stuff but really able to stay calm to to use all of my um, what I would call rock steady skills to help stay in my body, stay present to monitor the thoughts going on and which thoughts are helpful, which thoughts are just freaking me out. And it really was an amazing experience. And the truth is, is that was much harder than giving birth. Giving birth was a piece of cake. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it's, I felt like that was like another journey in my neuroplasticity of both using the medical system to support and guide me and help me understand my body, but not relying on it. And also having other resources to help me navigate the immense challenge and pain and the uncertainty of not knowing what the heck is going on. And as I was laying in my little kind of coffin, my dark half turned couch with all the blankets around it, I was actually contemplating how can I run my business without vision? I was actually starting to plan my business model for being blind and in that process i did have to cancel a few client sessions because i couldn't see it i couldn't barely cancel their sessions because i had to contact them but anyway so i was already in that state what 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 helped you how did you find your resources in your co dark coffin it must have been a horrendous <laughs> losing I, I i have to say the key word is surrender i just surrendered i was like okay no problem so my brother's a quadriplegic. Now I'm blind. It's going to be hard for my parents, but I can do this. We've got a lot of voice recognition technology now. I can get an assistant. I just surrendered. And through the surrender, I started problem solving. Okay, well, what would I do to keep being me? Mm -hmm. And so I started to just think laterally. And I mean, I suppose keep hope. That's also keeping hope. Um, but it, you know, it always comes back to body scanning. I had to stay in the body and my body was telling me I was fine. Uh -huh. That's you know, a big That's My, one my of the, feet, yeah. my knees, my hips, my breathing, my, they were all going, mm -hmm. you're fine. Cause that, that's crucial. You know, the fact that you have your yoga embodied awareness and that you could really, when your senses were shutting down, you could really rely on this very powerful resort body awareness and you, yep. you were hanging out with scanning the body and staying yep. in touch with the body that was saying it was okay yeah and that's, that's the same thing what happened when i was driving on the highway having the stomach drop having the vestibular migraine i mm -hmm. could hold onto the wheel i could feel the seat belt i could really embody the situation and be okay
-hmm. and also ask myself, do I actually need to pull over? Am I say, am I endangering other people? Like to have a real conversation of, is this a real threat or is this a passing blip? And, mm -hmm. and, and many times with vestibular conditions or tinnitus, it is a passing blip and we have to teach the brain that. So that but you're giving yourself a choice there. You're not trapped. You, you could, yeah. you could have pulled over if you wanted to. So yeah. Yeah. that, that yeah. leaves the choice open. And I remain curious. I'm like, okay, well, do I need to pull over and be safe? Is this going to go on for 20 minutes or is this going to be over and done with within five to 10 seconds? And I'm actually okay. I've got enough visual stability and clear passage. So all of that, and then the last important thing I think on my journey is through pregnancy. And this is quite common. People's sensations and symptoms change through menstruation, through pregnancy and through menopause. So there's definitely hormonal links. And I'm talking soon with Dr. Claudia, Claudia Welsh on this topic of hormones. And through my pregnancy, I did get one bout of um, pretty significant dizziness I was just riding down the street, doing really normal things, being gentle with myself. I had a, a medium-sized belly at that point, so maybe I was around 25 weeks pregnant or something. It was a hot day, um, and as far as I was aware, I'd eaten enough and drunk enough, but I, just, I rode down the street, just pleasant, quiet, small trip, and then I, I really almost blacked out, so I got really, really dizzy and nauseated, and it came on slowly. And I actually just went straight into a local cafe that I was comfortable with. I told the waitress, look, I'm feeling really dizzy and I'm going to go sit down and can you please bring me a glass of water? And I ordered a banana smoothie or something with her that I knew would be full of sugar and stuff just in case it was a sugar low. And I think I stayed there for 30 or 40 minutes and she just kept checking on me and I was resting my head. And I mean, just again, completely surrendered. I had no one I could really call upon to come and rescue me. So I, I had to kind of be with my body and be with my baby. And I was fine. The reality was it was really scary. It did make me anxious. I felt extremely vulnerable because I couldn't protect myself or my baby. But at the same time, I had all the resources and practices to do the simple things of, okay, just let the waitress know. Because then she can check on me and call the ambulance if that's what it comes to, right? So. I, and then I can body scan, I can hydrate, I can make sure my body has what it needs. I can do all of my self-talk and my self-compassion and daddy, daddy, daddy. The other thing that happened in my pregnancy was um, I start, so we did move house in my second trimester, but I thought we moved where there was like a pool cleaner. I'm like, where is this swimming pool? I can hear a pool cleaner. And what do you know? I had pregnancy tinnitus. So it was, I, was, I wasn't onto this one at all. I was like really looking for the pool cleaner. I'm saying to my husband, can you hear that sound? Like there's got to be a pool somewhere in our neighborhood. <laughs> that, that's and, definitely an Australian tinnitus sound because in London, people, not that many people have pools. So I don't come across pool cleaning tinnitus very often. <laughs> um, so anyway, it, it actually did get to me. I'm not going to lie. It, and, and, I'm more vulnerable while I'm pregnant. There's all the, I had such an anxious second trimester. Like I faced all of my fears in like a two month period. It was so intense. And so high stress, high trauma, evolution of self. It was a big self-development time for me on top of the hormones and running a business. And so, yes, I, the way I made my peace through that one was I didn't make a big deal of it. I did keep asking my husband if he could hear it, but it got to a point where I realized he couldn't hear it. And then I started to realize, okay, maybe this is the sound of my placenta. And so again, I created a oh, loving... I, I just lost you just then. Could you say oh. that again? Can you hear just me that, now? Just Yes, yes. Just that one second. Um, well, I think what I was saying is I, once I realized my husband couldn't hear it and it was in my body... I decided that perhaps I was hearing the sound of my placenta. And so again, I could change my relationship to the sound from being this annoying, what is it? Where is it? Oh my God, can I live in this house? Am I going to have to move houses because I can't, I don't like this sound, you know, just the whole cat, cat, the catastrophe stuff. And um, then when I, I, I had that relationship, I changed it to, okay, maybe this is actually the sound of my placenta. This is the sound of my pregnancy. My body is in a different gear. I'm not the Joey I was. I now have a new 
body sound that's perfectly safe, perfectly fine. And to be honest, I haven't, I'm pretty sure once I gave birth, the sound disappeared. I, ha- I haven't noticed it or heard it ever since. In fact, I almost completely forgot about it. But doing this interview so that's made... really what placenta sound like. Pool cleaners. But that's very empowering, isn't it? Because you, you could see it as a transitional state that was you know, that linked to your pregnancy. And it made it felt much safer to you, I guess. And, you know, if it stayed then it would just be a relationship to becoming a mother. So it was just that my body has changed. I've changed. I'm a new person. I've, mm-hmm. So it makes sense that sound within my world would change. And mm-hmm. I think similar to the questions you get, Julian, I have people ask me, well, are you sure you've rewired your sounds and your sensations? What if they're dormant and they're just sitting there ready to come back and they take you over again? And I, I think I know that the sounds are there. I know that the dizzy sensations are there. If I look for them, I can reactivate them. I can literally turn them up or turn them down. So I'm not afraid of them. I do feel like I have control over my focus, over my awareness. And when things come and go out of my control, I surrender. And I think once we have this toolkit, we have nothing to be afraid of and nothing to prove. Um, So I think in a nutshell, that's pretty much my stories as as much as my my clarity can can remember and and the truth of it is for me is i've i've come so far since experiencing the distressing tinnitus and the distressing vertigo and the loneliness and the anxiety and the depression that it almost feels like a lifetime away and it feels really weird talking about it because it's not really what i associate with anymore it's not who i am i've grown so much and in neuroplasticity terms i've rewired i'm nowhere near as self-critical as I used to be. I'm, I now have really great access to self-reassurance and self-settling, self-soothing, self-compassion, self-kindness. I'm not perfect, don't get me wrong. But when I do slip up, I can bring myself back. It's no big deal anymore. So I think I'll leave and what I'm really, What I'm really struck in your story is, you know, as a cranial sacral therapist in me, and I think, gosh, you know, wouldn't it have been great for you to have holding so that you could really deepen into stillness? And, you know, with cranial work, you get the whole body to feel very safe. And when you drop into stillness, the, the alarm bells, the sensors, the hypervigilance can really switch off. Um, you know, amazing what you did by yourself your you know i think i think there's there's many deeper layers but i actually have experienced sexual trauma and my my pattern growing up is is i don't feel safe with people so i'm not entirely sure that would have helped me because i think my reaction could have been don't touch me get off me Mm -hmm. leave me alone Mm -hmm. and this is where it's like everybody's different and Um, I, part of me was a victim and really desperately Mm -hmm. trying to get someone to to help me and fix me and sort it Mm -hmm. out. Um, I actually shared this story on my live call this week, I believe. And it was, if I'm repeating this, Julian, just give me the, the indication, but I don't think I am at my really, really, really low point when I was actually like having suicidal thoughts and just wanting out, I was not in a great living situation. Um, just, just feeling helpless, hopeless, powerless, nothing was going so great. Felt no meaning in life. Actually, I'd come off the back of a Vipassana meditation where I experienced absolute elation and having 10 days of silence and nobody bugging me was perfect. I loved it. It was like, Hmm. I don't like the world. I'm happy when I'm quietly meditating and no one annoys me and no one talks to me and I don't have to relate to anything or anyone. And this is really just the sign of a depleted person, by the way. I was totally spent. For so many reasons, I was just depleted. And I had put other people first. I was caring for other people and not caring for myself. So Vipassana was amazing. Um, I was on a complete ecstatic high, came back into the world, and two weeks later, really crashed. So anyway, at one point, feeling quite suicidal, and I don't know where I got this idea, but I created a funeral for myself. It was a ritual, not... I wasn't actually suicidal. I was just feeling like I wanted out. And um, I lay down on floorboards in my bedroom. I closed my eyes and I let myself die. And I said goodbye to everything, to the moon, the sun, the stars, my family, my friends. I said goodbye to everything and everyone. And I just went into this bliss of being dead. 
And actually, this is Shavasana. This is the yoga corpse pose where at the end of every yoga class, this is what we're ideally doing. We're actually letting go. We're surrendering life in order to be reborn again. I didn't know that at the time, but that was, it was this ritual of, I want to die. I'm going to push that button and I'm going to die. And I probably indulged in that for an hour or so until I got to this point of being like, okay, I've died now. That's done. I'm done with that. So now I want to live again. What next? And it was this like little spark. I went from this dark, dark, hopeless place to this little spark of hope. And from that point on, I started to take responsibility for my healing after a really dark period of seeing doctors, seeing kinesiologists, seeing whatever. I can't even remember. Psychologists, definitely. Um, obviously, talking to my audiology crew. Um, yeah, so I got up and I'm like, well, what now? And I think it took me 15 minutes to surface because my, my parasympathetic nervous system was so slow after this death ritual. But it took me ages to sit up, which of course made me dizzy. And I was like, I just want sun. So I got my bathers on, I got my towel, I walked to the local swimming pool, I didn't swim, and I just lay on the grass and I let the sun warm me. And from that point onwards, I began to heal. So something really changed when I had this huge death ritual. It was like I let go of the part of me that desperately needed the external fix. And I opened up a little bit of hope that maybe I can figure this out on my own. And that, that felt very significant to me. What an extraordinary story. It's a bit like um, a new birth, a new beginning, going yeah. right into the depths and then something new emerges. So, you know, I can really get to your sense of you know, neuroplasticity, a complete new way of being arising from a really dark place, or from an yeah. empty place. And, and I feel like it's really worth noting there, I didn't know how to heal myself. I didn't have the how. But I had the willingness and I suppose the intelligence to use trial and error to figure that out because I did have this extraordinary background in, in yoga, which really taught me the experiential value of neuroplasticity. I had a psychology degree. I had a neuroscience background. I had an acceptance commitment therapy and cognitive behavior therapy training. I had a master's in vestibular audiology. I had all these fragments and pieces of information and it was up to me to bring them all together and make sense of it. And mm. I also had incredible mentors who were vestibular physiotherapists and some of the world best. So mm. I, I, I just had so many pieces. I had to go, okay, well, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but I have a willingness to be wrong. I actually have a willingness to fall on my face and fail. And I healed you know, happy ending. And I used exactly the same process to build my business seeking balance and eventually build Rocksteady, the online program. It was, I know people out there need this support. I'm a living example that it's possible. How can I give people support that I didn't have? Cause I felt very alone mm. and I knew there were people all over the world crying and giving up and feeling helpless, hopeless, powerless. And they were my motivation to face all of my fears and do all the things I didn't want to do. I never wanted to run a business that terrified me. I didn't want to go out on my own. I loved the cushy idea of staying at a university and having my paycheck. And anyway, I had to leave all of that and face all my fears again and go, well, I don't actually know how I'm going to reach these people, but I have a willingness to fail. I have a willingness to figure it out. And I felt a real obligation actually to say, well, I've got this knowledge. I don't think anybody else in the world has this knowledge I have, maybe bits of it, but not the package. I felt an obligation to use that in service, you know, and that was again my spiritual piece of, well, how am I going to show up in the world? Am I going to hide under a tree and just go, yeah, I healed myself, job done? Or am I going to say, actually, there are millions and billions of people out there with disturbing tinnitus and dizziness who are being getting inaccurate information and um so this willingness i think to fail is a key piece and i kind of say that because i think if you're listening to this and going well i don't know how to start i'm a failure i'm a, i'm shaming myself i should be better i should be this it's like no you shouldn't if you don't know how to heal that's okay but it doesn't mean you can't learn 
there are now educational resources out there. And in essence, you have to be willing to try and fail in order to find out. And fail is really not the right word, but that's how it can feel at the time. We have to have this really lighthearted approach of, well, I'm going to try and support myself and my nervous system and my inner ears and my brain and support myself through navigating this restructuring and rewiring process. And some days I'm going to win and it's going to feel rewarding. And other days I'm going to try and it's not going to feel rewarding. And I'm going to have to support myself through that. Mm. So this idea well, of... It's just extraordinary hearing you how, you know, your, your therapist, your adult, is really resourced and really well and strong and clear. Um, and that's clearly become a, your, your work, your profession's become a really great steady rock for you. And the internal processes, oh, you know, the, the, you know my, my wish, this is the therapist and me speaking, my wish would be for you to find safety in relationship, um, mm -hmm. find the right kind of person, maybe have a chaperone with you and negotiate very, very safe contact. So you're in charge and um, mm -hmm. you know, stay within your comfort zone at all times so that the internal process can finally feel safe and switch off and yeah. and have that as somebody who's you know we have certain things in common and I'm also a highly sensitive person I can remember the first time um, I had hands-on treatment cranial work and I just felt myself surrendering mm -hmm. and I found myself just switching off and letting go and the whole body just <laughs> released and <sighs> and I just dropped into that really calm state of actually this feels safe. Yeah. So all, this is all about safety at this and, and finding that sense of safety in relationship is, is crucial for, 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 for healing and, and for the nervous system to really shift. So you've, you've mm -hmm. done so much by yourself and, and um, it's extraordinary um, really how well I, you've done. I have to also, um, so I have one Bowen therapist who's actually a childhood friend. She's the mother of a childhood friend. And later on in my journey, so once I was already in business and up and running, she did become a, and continues to be a very supportive person for me energetically. It almost feels like she clears my chakras, not clears them, but balances my chakras when I'm like, whoa. So I, I have my key people and the other really important person to mention is Hero Boga, who's been my mentor in terms of living in alignment with my soul, being able to be in the world in business, which I'm very uncomfortable with, but I've had to learn to reclaim my sovereignty over and stand in my truth and be like, well, actually, this is the only way I can help people. And the, it's, it's a long story, but she's been an, an amazing, solid mentor for me. And she's a few decades older than me and she has that really wise woman energy that I look up to and think, well, that's where I'm heading. That's where I want to. So I, I have had key people supporting me eventually, but there was definitely an apprenticeship there where I went, I had to go back to Joey and I had to learn to self-soothe. And I have so many examples of just falling apart and being a mess, but another time <laughs> when I was falling apart and a mess and I'd gone home to my parents, um, I remember taking myself into my bedroom, turning the lights off, which is a coping mechanism for me, for sure, and doing some really gentle yoga breathing and just taking myself to this incredible place, like a really light, deep, centered, it was, it was an ecstasy, it was a bliss. And so I did have lots of key moments and I think... I think it really became my strength that I learned to self-generate them and not rely on others. Mm -hmm. And I actually feel, and this is just my personal opinion, I feel that in our culture we are taught to lean on our parents, lean on our school teachers, lean on our employers, our bosses, rather than to really show up with self-responsibility and support and nurture ourselves through decisions made by independent thought instead of, well, How's it going to impact that person? I should be this. I should be that way. I'm obligated over here and um, I better go get their opinion. And traditionally, there has been these initiation processes around adolescence where boys and girls or young men and young women 
would go off on things like vision quests or wilderness quests and they would spend time in nature on their own and learn to have their own self-resources. And we don't have that necessarily in modern day culture. And this felt like kind of what I had to go through the grueling, hard, young adult way of going, okay, the world doesn't understand me. The, the, one of the major messages I was getting in my really difficult, darkest times was just buy a new outfit, get drunk and get over it. Like I got that message so many times by so many people. And I'm like, that just is a, that's not going to fix me. And I don't even want to get drunk or get a new outfit. I don't like shopping. So I felt completely misunderstood. I felt like a bit of a downer. I felt like a bit of a drag and it just felt like I didn't fit in the world. And so I had to really come into my resources and find a way to like myself, you know, heaven forbid, love myself and then find a way to be in the world. And it's, you know, the rest is history. I think, I think I've come so far and coming back to the depending on people thing, I was very resistant to falling in love. It was a huge, a lot of therapy for me to just be able to date and trust and now navigating that, that personal relationship with my husband is amazing. It's so healing. And now, of course, with my son and having that beautiful, intimate bond, it's just, it blows me away. And, um, and I'm very close with my parents. We, we all live nearby. So we've, we, I'm able to rekindle some of these things that were misunderstandings in my childhood about not being safe. I had loving parents. I had present parents. But because of my asthma and my going in and out of consciousness and breathing, my brain made decisions that I wasn't safe and I couldn't trust people. Mm, so oh. that's some of that inner child work that, that therapeutically is really important and really. Yeah, it's crucial. It really, it's such an important part of the journey. So, so what, what happens when you meet all the people with balance issues or tinnitus or hypercusis um, and, and when they come to you and they say, can I get better? Mm -hmm. what do you do what you say my first statement is well i can't predict the future you know if only <laughs> if only i could um but i also can't see why people wouldn't get better i i have no evidence to suggest you won't get better um i think if people don't believe in their body and are not willing to believe in healing then no you probably won't get better that's not a great combination um However, if people begin to get that education and just let those little pieces of light open up and go, okay, so my brain and body can change. Okay, so I can build neural pathways. I can focus on how I want to feel and make that my practice. I don't have to focus on my symptoms anymore. I can actually reset and rebuild my calm, my confidence, my quiet, my peace. And that's a methodical, structured, evidence-based way. Mm -hmm. Then, yeah, it's highly possible. I mean, people who go through my Rocksteady program and I'm – I'm not doing the research. I have a research team doing it, but we had out of 439 people, we tracked 146 of them, which is 33%. So we had a really good representative cluster. There was a 99.9999% chance that there would be a significant improvement in their symptoms. I mean, that is just an unbelievable statistic. And these are for people who finished all six modules of my Rocksteady program. Some people finish it in seven weeks some people finish it in a year and i actually know people who've done it in two years so it's not a quick process but when they're willing and when they're committed and when they're in that process of education and trial and error i think the results speak for themselves it's you are as a human being you are born to be adaptable your brain wants to seek balance and peace and quiet your brain's actually wanting what you want that's why it feels so good when we get it it's like whoo that i'm here and I think Did you encourage people to do yoga and body practice. Well, no, I don't, I, I don't recommend yoga per se, just because I think it's a minefield out there. God knows what you end up with, but through the rock steady process, the foundations of it, and I give this away freely on my website, the foundations is the body scan. You have to be able to look, to learn, to come home to yourself. Mm -hmm. Feeling is healing. If we're not feeling, if we're denying, ignoring, medicating, numbing, distracting, avoiding, the brain's not collecting the data. So what we need is the brain to feel through its way and to rearrange and recategorize and re-navigate how it's perceiving and experiencing the world. So the body scan is the, the key-based tool. Um, 
and, 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 and there is body work in my program, which is essential for tinnitus people as well as balanced people. You know, there's standing exercise, various foot positions. We want to challenge the ears and the spinal column and we want to make them work a little bit. We want to make it novel, exciting, playful, challenging. We want to get the brain into this adaptable, cooperative, um, hopeful space. And it very much involves body work as well as written work, insight work, you know, tapping through limiting beliefs, um, a lot of neuroeducation about the nervous system, about the vestibular and audiology system. And then, of course, values and aligning to ourselves and how to be the person we really want to be. Because another way of looking at it, which um, Julian's touched upon, this healthometer kind of dialogue, is when I'm hearing or feeling sensations that don't feel right. I call them the not quite rights. When I feel not quite right, you could almost think of that as being like the inner GPS of our soul saying, no, Joey, you're off track. This, this is not where your life is, you know, saying that that's not you, you know, making that decision or that choice, that's not you. And so it's like my body's going, mm -mm -mm -mm, come back, come back, come back. And it's giving me this subtle, navigation system of being in align with my alignment with my truth and i love the analogy of flying an airplane let's say from london to new york the airplane doesn't actually just fly there it's constantly navigating on and off path it's always a little bit off and then a little bit on and then a little bit off and a little bit on there's a constant um, evaluation of the coordinates and I think that's really the physical, mental, emotional, spiritual path that we're on as humans, whether we know it or not. And sure, we can numb ourselves and ignore that and medicate it, or we can drop right in and go, okay, where are my coordinates? Where am I going? That's probably the biggest piece about Rocksteady is I get people to stop thinking about where they don't want to be. Yeah, we know that. We've heard that a million times. We know where you don't want to be. We know what you don't want to feel, and we know what you don't want to hear. And to be quite frank, that's not going to help you at all. Where do you want to go? because where you want to go is actually how you redesign your neural pathways and how you heal. So it's all about moving in that direction instead of not wanting to be somewhere. And also the coming back to center in that plane analogy, coming back to your center. So much of these symptoms are about sensing danger in the world, danger. So everything flies into red alert. Um, and it's all about protecting the body, keeping the body safe from predators. That's why we have hearing. It's a principal cause of it, of, of, of it coming into existence. So if we can, with our body awareness, develop awareness where we can focus on the midline. So we have the, the body and we can be aware of the body and the mind can be aware of the body too. If we can just settle into that centered midline awareness and give that time and space sometimes it might take 20 minutes to mm -hmm. observing the breathing the midline something settles back in it's like the mind comes home to the body things integrate um, so that i often recommend yoga and meditation practices to really help people's awareness just settle back in and when you get that oh lovely coming back to center then the turbulence stops and things settle and the senses can really switch off um, we're not designed to hear our brain um, we're designed to hear the birds and singing or voices or whatever and the brain can actually filter all those background sounds mm -hmm. out start ignoring when we've come back to a place of feeling at home in the bodies so. yeah I, I guess grounds between us. <laughs> I guess I just want to clarify, and I, I think I said it in the our last discussion is I actually don't recommend anything to anyone because the reality is, is I don't know you. And for some people, yoga can be very triggering, as can meditation, as can breath exercises, and it can freak them into the red alert. And mm. and then of course they're like, Oh my goodness, Joey said to do this and now I'm a failure. Well, no, not at all. It's about finding what works for you and again it's that trial and error and what i found so there's some great mindfulness out there there's some great buddhist meditations and this and that but i find a lot of them and and, and i see clinical mindfulness psychologists with dizziness and tinnitus sensations who who are stuck right so it's not the be all and end all there's something else and there's something else missing and a lot of the time it's this dialogue with the body 
because a lot of mindfulness um, and basic meditation practices are about noticing, notice and let it pass, notice and let it pass, notice and let it pass, notice and let it pass. And rock steady is that piece that says, then what? Mm-hmm. Now what? And that mm-hmm. is the piece that is so critical and so often not even spoken about. It's just, oh, notice it pass, just accept it. And a lot of that's the common message people are getting. And it's, there's so much more to that. It's like, that's the beginning. Drop in, notice, allow it to process. And then what? Then you have to know who you are and where you're going. And that in and of itself is a whole journey of self-discovery. Cause a lot of people are like, I've forgotten what joy is. I'm not enthusiastic anymore. I don't wake up refreshed. And so they're rediscovering, well, who am I? What do I want? What kind of people do I want to hang out with? What kind of work do I want to do? What kind of relationships do I want? And this becomes their healing because they're suddenly actually really conscious about bringing more calm into their day or more courage or more adventure or you name it, more community, more connection. Connection is quite a common one, actually. I'd say feeling connection, a sense of calm, and perhaps trust are three really common neural pathways that my clients are working on building. And that would be building trust in the body, which as you can tell through my story, I was missing trust in my body, in society, in people, in relationship, in all sorts of ways. And I had to build that. And I'm continuing to build that because I have an ongoing neuroplasticity practice. It's not over. I'm humbly, humbly learning every day, really. So So having a sense of, well-being but also having a sense of direction and knowing how to manage things and you were coming to the, to the end of our session and i was wondering that if if you have any last things that you want to put into the pot oh definitely the the key words that have helped me and continue to help me when i'm struggling and it's dark and difficult and that inner part of my psyche who's a total drama queen and catastrophic and she's running the show and she's like nothing's okay you're not going to be okay it's all over the sky is just going to fall down on top of you when i'm in those moments i have to remind myself i often put my hands on my body you know maybe hold my womb maybe hold my heart wherever i feel i need it sometimes i hold my head and the words that really work for me are I'm allowed to feel this I'm actually allowed to feel that the sky is going to fall on top of me right now that's what I'm feeling I'm dramatic and I'm unapologetic about that I'm allowed to feel this and I'm allowed to feel this I can always come home to that sentence and so I just want to offer that if that resonates to any of the listeners yes to me (laughs) as well Oh, well, Jerry, it's been fantastic hearing your story. Thank you so much for sharing a personal journey and moving story. And um, I really hope this inspires other people to to find the kind of help they need to, to make a really good recovery. So thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And before I finish, I would love to invite people to my monthly live call series. They're free to attend. They're global. It's an incredible peer group support community for people with chronic tinnitus dizziness or vertigo and every month we have really great discussions on various topics on how to heal and why we're stuck and i'll if you visit my website seekingbalance.com.au you can join those calls and that will also give you all the updates about my book that's coming out and invite you to the book launch and to be a part of um our community and i think releasing this book is something people have asked me to do for 10 years and so Ah, big exhale. It's finally here. And I really hope my book lands in all the hands of people, whether you're experiencing dizziness, tinnitus or vertigo, whether your family members have it or whether you're a professional working with it. I think this book is a really great conversation to get people exploring, well, what next? So we've got to live with it. Well, how about I rewire my brain and use neuroplasticity and how do we do that? Great, and I, I, I want to end with my my own app called Quieten, as in Quieten Down. It's there are a lot of videos and practices on there that can be very helpful for soothing and calming the system down. And I also offer online question and answer sessions there, so it's a bit of a community set set up there, so you can bring your issues and we can meet in in real time on, on through the app. So That's it's wonderful. Called so you can find that um, online so 
all the best to everyone. <laughs> Wishing all the people in the world well. Lovely to meet you. Yes, thank, you. thank you so much for interviewing me. And I will pop your contact details um, to make sure anyone who's in my community and finds this interview can also reach out to you, Julian. So thank you so much for having me. A pleasure. Thank you.